Meanwhile, on the Godbeat. Hey, Godbeat listeners. I'm Danya Adanki, one of the web editors here at Sojourners. Today, we're talking about the Christians who are putting their freedom on the line to end the death penalty. We're talking to them about why this cause is so important and what motivates them to fight this fight. These are some of their stories. These are the voices of the death penalty abolitionists moments before protesting on the steps of the Supreme Court. On that wet January day, they climbed up the steps to the very top of the Supreme Court, singing and chanting while holding up a large banner that read, No Executions. But here's the thing. Free speech ends at the first step of the Supreme Court, so climbing up those stairs and holding a sign can get you arrested. And for these 18 people that morning, it did. They'd spend the next two days in jail for standing up for what they believed in. Most of the people were people of faith, many of them Christians, who strongly believed that Jesus was a victim of state-sanctioned violence. My brother Dale Resinella, he's a, he's a chaplain on death row, he says, any, any death penalty, pro-death penalty Christian has the nagging problem of Jesus. This is Shane Claiborne, one of the 18 arrested in January and a longtime activist and death penalty abolitionist. Jesus is blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, Jesus says, in as much as you forgive, you'll be forgiven. But then he also has a very clear um, interaction around a capital crime of a woman who is caught in adultery and humiliated. And it's actually, a, it was a death-worthy crime. So it, it was a, a case where she could be executed. And all the guys are getting ready to stone her. And Jesus kind of interrupts the whole scene um, so beautifully. You know, he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, then he reminds them and all of us, if you've called someone um, a fool, you've committed murder in your heart. If you've looked at someone with lust um, in your eyes, you've committed adultery. Like none of us are above reproach and none of us are beyond redemption. And uh, all the stones drop, the guys walk away and and Jesus and the woman are left there. And And you see that the closer we are to God, the less we want to throw stones at people. Shane believes the death penalty has existed in the U.S. not despite Christians, but because of Christians. 85% of the executions in the last 40 years have been in the Bible Belt. One of my friends says the Bible Belt is the death belt. Shane isn't wrong. The South has the highest number of executions in the country. Since 1976, it's had 1,189 executions. More than 650 of those were in Texas and Oklahoma alone. Derek Wayne Jameson knows these facts all too well. He was 23 years old when he was sent to death row for a crime that he didn't commit. It took 20 years for him to be finally exonerated. August the 1st of 1984, uh, two young men went into this establishment in Cincinnati. It was a nightclub called the Central Cafe. And these two young men went in and they attacked this young man and robbed the place and his family business. And they, like eight days later, a young man by the name of Gary Mitchell, he passed away. They charged me with this crime, this heinous crime. And I didn't know, I had never been in this establishment. I didn't know the people. I didn't know nothing about this crime. Even though it was in my community, I was charged with it. And I was wrongfully convicted of this charge and I was sensed to die. And 
one of the worst feelings in my life, knowing that I was innocent, you know. And I knew when they sentenced me to die, this was going to destroy my family, you know. And it did, you know. It cost me a lot of my family and a lot of my friends, you know. Derek says he never knew the man that he was accused of murdering and said the guy who actually did it was someone he grew up with. The guy that was murdered, his family came to my rescue too because they was like, "That's y'all got the wrong guy. You know, I got the worst case in American history. The, the homicide detectives and the prosecutors withheld 35 pieces of evidence in my case. You only need one new piece of evidence to get a new trial. They withheld 35 pieces of evidence. And when I went to federal trial for my new trial, they were, the prosecutor and the homicide detective, they were pointing the fingers at one another on who dropped the ball. In the process, I was doing all the suffering, you know. Derek now spends his life traveling and talking about what we need to do to abolish the death penalty. In the state where I'm from, uh, since in, um, Ohio, uh, since 1999, they didn't out 53 executions. And I knew them guys. When I got on death row, I was 23 years old. Most of them was like 18 and 19, but they looked at like they were 14 and 15. Cause I told the guards, what y'all killing kids now? But um, over the years, I watched these young men grow up to be healthy young men and get taken out of their cell and executed. I'm the only death row survivor from Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's a city, a, a huge city, you know, population of over a million people. I'm the only survivor from my city. And I got a problem with that. There are lots of stories of exoneration like Derek's, but there are also stories about victims and their families. Suzanne Bossler said her father was a minister, always helping others with food, water, shelter, and counseling. So new people weren't uncommon in their lives. When I heard the doorbell ring, I said, okay, is it somebody regular that comes to us for help, or is it a new person? I was listening. Now, Suzanne's story is a little bit graphic. So if you'd rather skip the descriptions of violence, you can jump to 7.45. As soon as my dad opened the door, I heard him make strange noises. And I went running out into the hallway. By the time I got in the hallway, my dad was holding onto the kitchen doorway like this. And a man was stabbing him with a knife many times. So I I involuntarily screamed. I went towards them to see if I could help. By that time, my dad had been stabbed so many times, he was on his hands and knees. The man turned around towards me, was going to stab me in the front. I turned, he stabbed me three times in the back, and I went down on the floor. Turned around again, and my dad, he was stabbing my dad multiple times all over his body again, and he collapsed. I tried to get up, and the man put his hand on my shoulder right here, and I was backing into the living room, and he, he and I were looking at each other like, like this, and he was holding the knife up by his head. And I see out of the corner of my eye, Dad crawling to the front door. And I see the knife come towards my face, and I turn, and it embedded into my head twice here, and I went down on the floor. I'm talking to God. I'm talking to myself, thinking, you know, hoping this dream. But when this warm blood came across my face, or I could see my dad gasping for breath, the reality was there. And then you go, what should I do now? Despite witnessing her father die and being stabbed multiple times herself, Suzanne and her family told the courts that they did not want the death penalty for their father's murderer. The court's reaction was shocking. The prosecutor finally again asked me the question, you know, your name, your address. Suzanne, what's your occupation? I said, well, 
I'm a hairdresser, but I work to abolish the death penalty. Oh my gosh. And I'm not looking at the prosecutor. So he's pretending that that's okay because the jury's there. And so after that, they sent the jurors out. And it was after that, <clears throat> they did the sidebar and the judge turned to me and said, Suzanne, if you ever say your opinion about the death penalty again, I will put you in jail for six months and fine you $500. And I'm thinking to myself, he's saying that to a victim? What kind of justice system is this? Am I in the right place? Am I in the right country? And so after that, I I wasn't their, you know, witness anymore. I was I was their enemy. I asked Suzanne why, after all that she'd been through, did she want to fight for the life of this man who killed her father? My father and I had a discussion eight years before this tragedy happened. We had a discussion about the death penalty. I knew his religious way, why he was against the death penalty. He was telling me the deterrence way, the cost way, the all, many different ways why it was wrong and he gave me this simple example Suzanne let me give you a simple example if anyone were ever to murder or kill me I would still not want that person to get the death penalty and that's something I will never forget because before I really forgave him I had to do it first for my father because I feel that James Murrah Campbell he has the title murderer and if I was going to help the government kill him I would be just like him, I would be a murderer too. And I will not bring my dad's dignity down. I honor my father with a life, not a death. I will not bring his dignity down. For these activists, the work continues. They travel the country, speaking and making the Christian case for abolishing the death penalty. And the message seems to be working. Back in April, outrage erupted when the state of Arkansas scheduled executions for eight men in 11 days. Ultimately, four of those executions were blocked by the courts, but it raised many questions about the ethics of the death penalty and of a justice system in which your zip code determines your fate. 19 states and the District of Columbia do not have the death penalty, and 30 states have not carried out an execution in the last five years. In fact, only 2% of the counties in the U.S. are responsible for over 50% of all executions since 1976. For people like the 18 arrested on the steps of the Supreme Court, these numbers paint a stark picture of injustice, and their faith compels them to act. Check out our show page at sojo.net slash godbeat and click on this story for more info, including a link to a death penalty abolition teach-in led by a few of the activists. This segment was produced by Daniel Dunkey with help from J.P. Keenan and Sandy Villarreal. Music by Manus Mars and Begin Again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>